This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit Tacovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I sit down with my guests to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Hank Shaw is a celebrated chef, author, and outdoorsman who runs the award-winning website Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. In this episode of Anchored, Hank and I walk through his timeline, stopping along the way to discuss how we age game birds, our favorite edible weeds, dandelion wine, and much more. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by Great Fishing Adventures of Australia. The diversity of Australia's fishing experiences is as vast as the country itself. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia is the catch of Australia's best fishing operators that have come together to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. No matter what the season, Australia offers enthusiasts the opportunity to indulge in their passion and experience some of the world's very best fishing amongst some of the most naturally spectacular environments the world has to offer. Discover your next fishing adventure by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. Also, if you haven't already, be sure to check out anchoredoutdoors.com. Our master classes are almost ready to post and membership prices will inevitably be going up. Right now, you can still get in at an honored rate of only $4.99 a month. But prices are doubling soon, so please do not wait to get on board. That's anchoredoutdoors.com. Where was I born and raised? New Jersey, just outside of New York City. Okay. Were your parents outdoors people? Mm, sort of. Not really. Um, my actual dad likes sailing and still does. Um, he doesn't sail anymore because he's, he's of a venerable age. But my mom was always interested in just being outside. But 
it's not like we were campers or anything. I was not a hunter, but we did fish quite a bit. And, and I think I get a lot of what people know me for now from my mother. Uh, she's the one who basically taught me to fish along with my stepfather. Parents got divorced at a young age. And my mom's uncle, a guy named Arthur Hatfield, and yes, it's that family, um, was a naturalist in the 1920s and 1930s. And so he taught my mom when she was a little girl all about all the edible wild plants and mushrooms of, of New England. And so mom kind of translated that into her children. So the one thing that I noticed growing up is that I always knew the names of things and not very many of my fellow kids knew the names of things. And it was always very important for mom to tell us and, and actually for dad too, because they're both big bird, bird watchers to know that that's not just a bird. It's an indigo bunting. That's a, that's a house finch or that's an elm. And those are junipers and that sort of thing. It's not just a bush. It's not just a tree or a bird. So while it's not like we grew up in any kind of great wild place, um, wild things and, and things that were, you know, not inside were a huge part of our family's DNA. Yeah. It's amazing with foraging. I mean, it's pretty new to me personally, but I found that since I've started foraging, I look at the world differently. And I feel like if I had started with foraging, it would have made me a better hunter and angler because you can identify plants by walking down even a busy street. You can identify that that's shepherd's purse or understand the difference between the different dandelions. And and I feel like it just makes you way more observant to the natural world if you start with something that's in such abundance around you. I think that's accurate. I mean, I think you could also save any number of really crappy fishing or hunting days because quite often uh, the fish aren't biting or the deer didn't show up, but Oh look, mushrooms. And that can save a bad day anytime. Yeah. And the fact that they're not trying to run away from you. <laughs> so that makes it easier to be able to really take your time in the experience. Right. Although mushroom hunting is, ex- it is exactly like regular hunting uh, in the sense that you have to find the habitat. You have to, figure out where they should be and then they're there or they're not. And there's, you, you can like sit in this, the equivalent would be to go to a spot where you think they're going to be and they're not there. Well, you just had a st- day in the stand and they're just, they're not there. So you have to keep coming back and over and over and over again. And, and there are some other mushrooms that just appear and we don't fully understand why they appear where they appear. It's not like blackberries where I know where the blackberry bush is and it's July and the blackberries are going, going to be ripe. So we're going to go. Mushroom hunting is not really like that. Yeah, and it changes by the day, doesn't it? it? Does. Okay, so where did you go from there? I'm not going to get too personal with you, but it sounds like you went with your mom. Mm-hmm. And then did she stay in Jersey, or did she end up leaving? No, no, I I went through high school in New Jersey. I graduated from Westfield High School, and then went to the State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is on the east end of Long Island. That's where I did my undergraduate work. Gotcha. So at that point, were you really involved in the outdoors? It sounds like. Between your mom and your stepdad, you were pretty immersed in it. Eh, uh, no, um, I mean, I. You have to really understand the the New York City metro area, and it, uh, the thing about that area is that the thing that we do is we fish. We fish a lot. I mean, if you look at the number of uh, fishing trips per capita, only Florida beats the New York City area. Like we fish. <laughs> and it's all saltwater fishing. I mean, I caught my first tuna as a young teenager and 
I didn't even catch a blue, a bluegill or some kind of crappy little panfish until I was in my twenties because we were saltwater fishermen. My mom is from right next to Gloucester, Massachusetts. So saltwater fishing is in our blood. But other than that, you know, we'd pick blackberries and I, I found beach peas. I'd eat those. And there were a few other things that I would, I would, I knew that were edible and that would, I would, be attracted to how I found them, you know, like, Oh, look that, but it's not like I would go out gathering things on any real common basis until probably my late twenties. But I was a deckhand in college and I dug clams. So, you know, fishing is the single, this is why the, the book that I'm writing right now, which is on fish and seafood has been the hardest book for me to write because I know too much. Like I've been doing this for 45 years and for every sentence I put down in that book, and I, I can think of like, well, you know, there's this other fish in this other part of the country that doesn't apply to that. But, you know, y- you end up knowing too many what ifs and, and, and exceptions to be able to write much of anything with, with certainty. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, because, you know, I do associate you with forage and hunt. And I would have put fish kind of towards the back end of what I would have, you know, thought you to be specializing in. Do you hear that often or is that just me not having my facts straight? No, it's, it's the whole world. Like, like everybody knows me as the game guy and I've been catching, cooking and eating fish professionally and not professionally for 25 years longer than game. So, I mean, there's the number of species of fish or seafood in North America that I haven't eat can only be counted on a few hands. Gotcha. So what about hunting then? How did that happen? Where does that fit into your timeline? That showed up what much later. I was 32 years old and I was living in Minnesota and my fishing partner, a guy named Chris Niskanen, uh, he was the outdoor writer for the newspaper that we both worked for, uh, the St. Paul Pioneer Press. So it kind of slid towards fall and, you know, hunting season for him had started and he just asked if I wanted to go hunting and I, and I for whatever reason, I was ready. And the thing that made it stick was this. So as you know, well, as a guide, fishing is not just having a rod and reel in your hand. Fishing is knowing the, I mean, you're, you're a mostly like a stream angler, right? So for you, it's to know where the water holes are, you know, where the overhangs are and all all the little details of like, you're going to, your, your client's going to stand there. For me, it was, I know, I have to know the currents and the tide tables and the time of year and how cold is the water. And am I going to, like one of my best spots for black sea bass was a U-boat that they sank in 1944. And so if I knew that if I dropped that weight and I heard pinging and not like a thud of of mud on the bottom, I knew I was on the U-boat and we were going to catch fish. So there's all of this ancillary information that makes you an actual angler. Well, we went on a pheasant hunt in South Dakota and he had, a, you know, I could see that he had all this ancillary information about hunting that I, quite frankly, just never gave any thought to. It's not like I didn't know about, like I just, I didn't know what I didn't know. And so, you know, we're going to walk this field. We're going to walk this field in this way. And that field, which to me at the time looked just like any other field. I'm like, well, why aren't we watching, walking this one? He's like, cause there won't be any birds in it. And, that kind of knowledge of the the terrestrial environment, the way I knew aquatic environments was unbelievably exciting. And, and you know, and not not for nothing, I've, I've also been a professional chef. So the food aspect, because he'd been buttering me up by giving me some game and 
by doing that, it's just, you know, I know I knew how to cook it. So that just like, okay, this is the third leg of a stool that I need to create for myself. Okay. So you were already really established in the culinary world at that point. Yeah. I, uh, I became a line cook and a low level, like a sous chef in uh, restaurants in Madison, Wisconsin, when I went to graduate school. Okay. What was your long-term goal? Did you want to be a professional chef for the rest of your life? Did you want to be the next Gordon Ramsay? What was, where was your head at back then? I just wanted a job. I was, I was a running semi-professionally for Adidas. I was going to full-time graduate school. I was going to raves. Um, like I was, this is that time of your life and everybody, if you think about it, if you're listening to this, there's a, there's a moment, a year or two or three in your young twenties where you look back at it and you don't know how on earth you absolutely did it. I lived on four hours of sleep for two years. And honestly, I could kiss you right now because I cannot tell you how many years, especially when I was going from my twenties into becoming, you know, more of who I am today, where I was so conflicted. I was like, am I an outdoors person? Because how could an outdoors person club like that and put in those late nights and party like that? Maybe I'm just going through a phase, but to hear somebody like you, who's obviously very clearly an outdoors person be, you know, know that you were going to raves. That just tells me that we all have our crazy twenties and it doesn't mean that we are, we're not outdoors people. It just means that we were in our twenties. The crazy thing is I was the only well, God, I was kind of the only white guy in a bunch, bunch of my jobs at the time too. I was, uh, I was the, uh, I ended up becoming an editor at the Madison Times Weekly newspaper, which is the black newspaper in Wisconsin, or in Madison. And then I did that. I was a, str- I started as a stringer for them, but before that. Oh my I, God. I thought you were going to say you were a stripper. <laughs> stringer. Okay. No, gotcha, for the good gotcha. of humanity, I was not a stripper. Um, and at the, the first, uh, news, uh, first restaurant I ever worked at was an Ethiopian place. And I was, I was, uh, again, the only white guy on staff and, uh, I was the dishwasher. <laughs> so, you know, the way I became an actual cook and then a sous chef was because the actual cook never showed because that happens all the time in the restaurant industry, as you well know. And then Mesa who was the boss, she said, you cook today. And I'm like, all right, cool. And as it happens, I know how to cook and, you know, I can take direction and I can take orders and I learned how to cook Ethiopian quite well at that place. Uh, how cool is that? You know, I've got a really silly and ignorant question. We drive by an Ethiopian restaurant all the time and I mm-hmm. always, I want to, we need to make time to go in, but what is Ethiopian food? So Ethiopian food is one of the, I would argue, people could argue with me, but it's it's one of the three or four great cuisines of sub-Saharan Africa. And it's arguably the best. I think the only other cuisine in sub-Saharan Africa that can go toe-to-toe with it would be Senegalese. It's uh, Ethiopia is an ancient nation. I mean, they are arguably the oldest Christians still around. They have never, they were never colonized. So they have this unbroken proud tradition in East Africa, in the, in the horn of Africa, just above Somalia. That's ancient. And you have to have that kind of a, you have to have a civilization to have great cuisine. You can have good food anywhere, but there's a reason why Mexican cuisine is so great because there you have the, you have the Maya and the Aztecs underpinning it. You know, India has several great civilizations underpinning that and Ethiopia has their own. So it's a lot of, you can sort of smell the curry in it because it's, it's not that far from India. 
it's not that far from the Arab states. And in fact, there's lots of Muslims who are from Ethiopia. So the, the food is always eaten with the right hand. And you use this crepe, uh, it's called injera, and it's made of, of a, of a tiny little seed that they make into flour called teff. And that was my job was to make the teff, the injera every morning. So you, you grab a piece of this crepe and you grab whatever it is that you want to eat with your right hand and you eat it. Uh, I'm left-handed. So when I had to learn how to do that, I had to sit on my left hand because the left hand's for wiping your ass basically. And. And so that's, it's a, it's insulting to eat with your left hand, um, in, not only in Ethiopia, but in the rest of the Arab world. So, and you just grab these stews and there's a lot of vegetarian stuff and there's a lot of wonderful, wonderful, you know, meats. I mean, this is where I learned how to break down an animal. Mesolesh would bring a whole butchered lamb, like it's just a whole lamb with no skin on it, right? And said, break this down for, <laughs> for dinner service and, I didn't actually tell me how to do it. So I had to learn through trial and error and, and it was very instructive. I'll put it that way. Yeah, no kidding. So speaking of history, I think I read somewhere that you went to school for history. Does that sound right? I did. I got a master's in history at Wisconsin. Go Badgers. So, so how has that impacted your career over the years? Immensely. Um, so, I mean, we're all the sum of our choices, right? So I have this background that we've already described. And then by, by, being trained as a historian, which is what happens when at the master's level, I know how to do research and I know how to not think that I know something just because I read one book about it, which is a, a major problem in much of the world. You know that you have to really question your source as well as read the material that's in the source. And so it has allowed me to myth bust for much of my career as one of the things that people like about what I do is because I will go into the science behind X, Y, and Z and say, this is actually the science behind it. This is, this is what's the, this is the reality. I mean, I've done this with a lot of forage stuff. You do it with fish. You can do it with, with anything. Like I wrote a piece about deer fat and everybody knows that most, not all deer will have fat that will coat your mouth as, as it cools. And it's, there's a particular long chain fatty acid that's, that's in deer fat that's not in beef fat that causes that to happen. Well, it is of course diet dependent. So certain deer won't have it and, and you just, it's, it's regional dependent and it's to some extent species dependent. But that's one of those things where I, I, I went off the deep end and, and really dug into it and like, okay, here's the deal. This is what's going on. And here's how to either mitigate it or go with it or, or whatever. And there were so many deer hunting myths that got broken in that piece that people just, a lot of people just wouldn't want to, they didn't believe it. You know, like, oh, you're just wrong. All right, fine. You know, this is the same people who think that, that COVID-19 isn't a thing. So uh, that's that background, that education has really, really helped me a lot. You know, and then in, I was a newspaper reporter for 18 years, you know, and mostly covering politics. And you learn a lot doing that. I mean, just strip away the subject matter for a second and you learn to write clearly on deadline quickly. It's, it's an extension of what we talked about before we went on the air, where when you work in a kitchen, you learn to work precisely, very quickly under a lot of stress. And, you know, <laughs> you sure as hell do that in a newspaper environment as well. I mean, I, I, I think probably the greatest moment to, to, uh, to illustrate that would be the the Democratic National Convention of the year 2000. So I'm there 
and and um, Al Gore has just given his uh, his laudatory speech after he, he officially accepts the nomination. And so I'm working for a, a Virginia newspaper. Okay, so there's a three hour time difference between when that speech ends and when they're going to the press. So the only, I had 12 minutes to write the story. So what you do is you pre-write a lot of it and you kind of know what's going on. You get prepared remarks, but you have to double check it because if he doesn't actually say the prepared thing, you have to change the quote. And, and so what I had seen from that, from his prepared remarks is that this is very much like the William Jennings Bryan's cross of gold speech that he made for the, the Democratic nomination back in, I think it was 1912. So there's this great parallel to this great other populist moment in previous American history. So I, I structured the, the skeleton of that story around that as he's given this speech. And, and so I had 12 minutes from when the speech was over to dictate, just like you see in the old 1940s movies. So it was like, and then he said, and then he turned to the right, the stop crowd uh, roared stop next paragraph start you know and just that kind of stuff and it's just like boom 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 and you want to talk about adrenaline right that's pretty crazy <laughs> well i was going to ask you that it sounds like you get off a little on adrenaline i mean from re- being a runner to working in restaurants you know in a, in a high-paced environment and then being a reporter do you feel like one of the reasons why you've gone down such a chill path nowadays is because you've had so many years of high pressure adrenaline pumping activity? I've never really actually given that any thought. Um, it's possible. It sure sounds plausible that coming out of your mouth. I mean, <laughs> but I'll be, I don't know. I don't, I think, I think the vestiges of it are my wanderlust, my desire to not only be conversant in the plants and animals and, and fish of California where I live, but the whole Western hemisphere. And then when I get the Western hemisphere under my belt, I'll go to some other hemisphere. And so there's that, but I think maybe you're right in the sense that I, you know, I get put in the same bucket as, as Stephen Ranella quite a bit and we're really different humans. Um, he, I think this is easily represented by the first, very first episode of his TV show where he gets like helicoptered into the Tongass National Forest to go black tailed deer hunting. And I'm watching this. I'm like, it's a pretty riveting show. It's a cool, great, great TV show. But I'm like, why don't you just go in the backyard and whack a whitetail? And like, it's so much easier just to do that. And you know, you get to watch that show and you get to know him better. And it's like that he's still an adrenaline junkie. And like, I'm just kind of not, <laughs> not when it comes to hunting and fishing. No, don't get me wrong. The tug is the drug and it always will be like, I'm sorry. You get a, a amberjack on the line, you know, right outside of a rig in, in the Gulf of Mexico. And you got to, you got to yank him off the rocks or yank him out of that, out of that rig. There is nothing better than that. Like something that will wear you out. So I still get it with fish, but with hunting, I don't know. Like, I don't, it's not like I want it to be easy all the time, but I, I don't mind if it's hard. I think I'll put it that way, but I don't seek out hard. Do you view hunting strictly as meat or is it all part of the experience for you? It's all part of the experience. I mean, it would be crazy to do it just as meat because it's a, it's not economically viable. 
But B, you miss, if you're just thinking that you're grocery shopping when you're hunting, you're missing out on an enormous amount of why we do what we do. I mean, it is that, but it is way more than that. I mean, so one of the things that I've been trying to do over the years is to complete the North American small game slam. So the goal is to hunt, kill, and eat every animal smaller than a deer that has a season and a bag limit in the U.S. and Canada. And I'm only about 14 species away from it. But this is a, that's a goal oriented thing, right? It is. That's strictly goals. Do you, are you a goal guy? I must be. Yeah. Well, yeah, and it makes sense, especially if you did run and and in looking at your past, it would make sense. Um, So wait a second. So what are the 14 that you're left trying to get? So I know the one that comes springs to mind are all the rails. I haven't, I haven't really successfully hunted rails at all. And there's four of them. There's the, there's the king, the clapper, the Virginian, the Sora. So there's four there. There are two Arctic bunnies. There's the Alaska hare and then there's the Arctic hare. Um, so I, I need both of those. Uh, I've got all the squirrels, got all the quail, got all the non-natives except for the Himalayan snowcock. There's one. I need that guy. And he only lives in the Ruby Mountains of Nevada. Um, there are two ptarmigan I still need to, to get. And those are also boreal and arctic birds um, so it sounds like you've not you've knocked off the big the bigger stuff it's really getting down into the nitty-gritty now oh yeah like to the point where like i went to the the mexican border in texas earlier this year and uh and hunted chachalacas which is this it's a it's a they're a chicken relative and they're native from brownsville texas to argentina and they're super noisy i urge you to youtube chachalaca you're welcome they're hilariously loud birds <laughs> they, they even sound delicious do they taste good they are amazing <laughs> arguably the single greatest game bird i've ever eaten no so kidding. the single biggest reason not only are they like chickens because they're a lot like chickens but the, here's the thing they're like fat chickens like morbidly obese fat chickens in the wild. Do you know how rare fat is in the wild? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Like I worship, <laughs> I worship at the temple of fat, right? Like fat salmon bellies or, or yellowtail bellies or tuna bellies, ducks, geese, you know, sometimes mostly pigs fat are almost always good. Certain bear fats are pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. This, but birds, you know, upland birds are as a rule, super, super skinny. And these chachalacas were so fat to which you say, how fat were they? (laughs) How fat were they? (laughs) They were so fat from three birds. I rendered out enough fat, like schmaltz, chachalaca schmaltz to make a batch of flour tortillas. No kidding. How do they get so fat? What are they eating? So they're right on the, on the Mexican Texas border. So it's a, it's a subtropical environment. So it never really gets difficult for them to live. And they're perching birds. They're not, um, they do run around a fair bit, but they, they spend most of their time going limb to limb in the middle and middle story of the trees. So they don't burn a ton of energy and there's a lot of food around and they live, they can live for a while. So. I was just like, Oh my God, these birds are amazing. I must have them. And, and so that was just, that was kind of a cool 
I mean, it was an adrenaline rush in a different way. It wasn't the you're going to die adrenaline rush. It was when I butchered this bird. I'm like, great, sweeping Jesus on the cross. Look at all the fat and like what I could then do with that. So, I mean, I it's it's a little different from from most guys, I guess. But it's just it, that's definitely lights a fire underneath me. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I have a question for you. I know when I hunt grouse, I like to age my birds for almost a week. Is it different with a fatty bird? Could you age it or is fat more likely to go rancid? Yes, it is, which is why I don't really age my ducks anymore. Because in Northern California, our ducks tend to be quite fat. And sure, you can age them and it'll work, but the fat can go a little off. And the, the biggest problem with aging a fat bird is that, that fat, as as we know, is insulation. So the thermal energy stays in the bird more if it's fat to the point where like you can't you can't really age a goose unless you gut it, you know, because if you don't gut it, then it's just it's going to rot. The same thing with a wild turkey. Do you leave your guts in when you're hanging or when you're aging grouse? Always. See, Always. I, I've experimented. So I did this huge experiment when I was in camp last fall and I, and none of my birds were gut shot, but the ones that I left the guts in, I could pick up a bit of a flavor. What was I doing wrong? Yeah. That's the whole point. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, that's the whole point. So also next question, do you pluck or skin? Uh, I've done both. And I, I found that I prefer to pluck. See, if you age them for a bit, they pluck so easily. It's like pulling it out of butter, right? Um, exactly. But so. yeah, I've, I've done both. I don't know if I found a difference in the taste. Are you saying that you like the taste of that little bit of kind of gut? The grouse funk? Yeah. A hundred percent. Really? A hundred percent. And if you talk to the English? Yeah, right. The, you know, the high game. They talk, they refer to it as high game and, they take it farther than I would. Um, but the, the main reason I do leave the guts in on something like a grouse or a quail is, is mechanical. It is infinitely easier to pluck an ungutted bird than it is a gutted bird. Right. Oh, so wait a second. So you're saying that plucking it wasn't necessary. So with the ease that I had plucking wasn't necessarily that that bird was aged. It could have been that it was not gutted. No, it was the age. It was the age. So the problem is when you've got a bird, you now have a, a, a hole in the bird. And so plucking near that hole in the bird, it gets messy and the, and the feathers right to, right at the edge of it. And, you know, so the way you would do it, if like, if you're listening to this and you're, and you're being hugely skeeved out at the idea of, of whole birds hanging, if you want to pluck them and you want to gut them and you want to age them, what you do is you pluck around where you're going to cut immediately because when the bird is still warm those feathers come right out and so as soon as the bird cools you're you're effed you know you got to wait three days but if you if you pluck around the vent and where you're going to eventually gut the bird right when the bird dies or soon after then it'll be fine because then you've got bare skin around where you're going to cut and then you take the guts out and you you know you paper towel it off and then you're good to go but if you don't and you have feathers coming right up to where you made that cut it's it's an absolute beast to get them off without ripping the skin yeah that makes sense do you hang them by the head do you do the whole thing where you wait till their heads fall off do you know anybody who actually does that no no i don't because they don't <laughs> oh really it's it's a myth yeah it's a myth what? um so everybody has this story about some other person or group so the french say it about the english the english say it about the french 
you say it about your uncle Tom. Uncle Tom says it about his cousin Joe's sister. <laughs> so and you know, it's like, it's never, it's never, I leave them on till the heads fall off. It's like, I know this guy that does that. <laughs> so what's the history behind that? Any clue? Probably because the English really do like high game that it probably happens once in a while. Okay. Gotcha. So is that what they call it when it's kind of got that gutty flavor, high game? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's high game and there's high game. Like the, you know, the English will let them hang to, you know, sometimes 10 days, 14 sometimes, and not at 50 degrees, sometimes at, you know, just under the eaves. See, I never would have thought that somebody preferred that flavor. But when you look at a lot of the, I think it's the Scandinavian countries who, what do they do with fish? They like bury the fish till it rots. Do you know what I'm talking about? That's hakarl, and that's uh, that's Icelandic Greenland shark. Well, there's a reason for that. It's not just flavor. I mean, we can get to the flavor in a second, but but hakarl is done because the um, if you don't ferment Greenland shark, you will die by eating it. You oh. cannot eat fresh Greenland shark. It's so high, and I believe iodine uh, or some or vitamin A, maybe it is. Um, just like you can't eat a polar bear's liver. Fun fact. I did not know that. It's too high in vitamin A, you'll die. Really. I mean, I suppose you could take a nibble, but if you had like a meal of it, you'd die. How come you could do it with a black bear's liver? I think because polar bears only eat meat. Gotcha. They're obligate carnivores. That's fascinating. So back to the fermented Scandinavian thing. You're absolutely right. And the most, I don't know if it's the most hideous thing, but I would put it in the top 10 most hideous things people eat in the world is surströmming, which is, it's like rotted herring. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's and it's like you you don't open the can until the can's about to explode oh god like youtube it it's hilarious and so <laughs> it's it's a i believe it's illegal to open a can of surströmming indoors in sweden so it's like, so they got on the fermentation go, yeah it's like rotting in the can and so they they open the can and the can goes <laughs> and this hideous stink comes out it's oh god now there are tamer versions of that um Norwegian rockfisk, which is a fermented trout. So I've done that and I've made it and it was really good fermented for like a month. Uh, I liked it a lot, but they do it for like a year and it becomes kind of like a cheese. Like imagine a, um, a stinky French cheese, but it's actually trout, it's which is to say horrible weird. It's not, it's just weird. It's very strong. It's, it's, it would be horrible to eat a filet, but you typically will eat like a, a schmear of it because it does kind of get smeary yeah. on like a, a rye cracker. And it's like, oh, that's not bad in that small dose. Hey, does it taste like mushrooms? Eh, a, not so much. It's more cheesy. But you're, you're definitely getting that fermenty umami thing going on. It's interesting because I did a whole piece on or a whole series on Josh Nyland's book. The whole fish and oh, I like that book. Yeah, it's really interesting. And then he, he was just won the beard award, by the way. He did. I know because I'm I'm filming with him in a week. He's doing a masterclass for us, and so um, I film with him in a week. And I was trying to deal with him at the, the same night that he won the award. It was absolute chaos, <laughs> but it's a huge deal. It was a really big. It's a really big deal around here. Yeah, um, but, he's super young too. So yeah. I'll be interested to see. There are some things that he has in that book that I'm like, mm, I don't know. You know, and so that it's, it's, he, I can see me and him when I was his age in the sense of like, this is where it is. And like, <laughs> then you, then you see enough after that. You're like, yeah, 
Yeah, it's a way to do it, but it's not the way to do it. Well, you know, he doesn't fish at all. We've been trying to get him out to go fishing. He doesn't fish at all. So I would, no. I would love to see you two um, get to hang out. I'd love to see you take him fishing. I think that would be that'd be fun. Yeah, big time. But he was saying that if you don't age your fish just a little bit, that you really don't get to enjoy the full fla- the flavor. He said that a lot of people really, and you would have read this in the book, but he's saying mm-hmm. that a lot of people like fish because it's simply flavorless. And he thinks you're doing a, a disservice by not aging it to really be able to understand what it actually tastes like. So is that, is that pretty standard in all meat? Do you think it has to, to sit yeah. a while to, to actually taste it? I mean, I know what you're saying. I know what he's saying. And the answer is yes, but. This is like what I was telling you before about this fish book. Um, so uh, think of the, if you, if you eat a fish directly, like on the boat, um, provided it doesn't have not full of worms, there is a kind of a crunchy texture to it that like a raw kidney has that is, is exciting and interesting. If you're talking about full depth of flavor of any given thing, he's right and you're right. And it's for sure. And so I first learned this traditionally with um, monkfish, skate, and sturgeon. So we've known that these three fish do way better 48 to 72 hours after they're caught than that day. Have you ever tried to f- cut a fish in rigor? Uh, no. Well, yes, when I would guide for salmon sometimes, but not not really. And if we did, they – did you say gut or cut? Cut a fish in rigor. Uh, yes, I've like cu- fillet a fish that's in rigor. Yes, I've cut. I have not gut because I always gutted right away. Well, I've done both. It sucks. Um, <laughs> it's so when you have to like manhandle the fish to be straight so you can fillet it. That's no bueno. I've had to do it any millions of times as a deckhand, and it's it's super not fun. Um, so that's a great case of. Doesn't it make it easier? Because uh, don't you just then put your thumb in the vent and then just it stays straight and you can just make your cuts. I mean, you, no, you have to, you have to physically bend them straight. Um, and sure, you can cut it, but you can see that the meat is just crying. Yeah, um, right, right, right. I can see it now. You want to cut a fish before rigor or after rigor and never in the middle. And it's, it's funny because people forget that they, everyone knows this with deer or with beef or whatever. They're like, yeah, I got a lot of cut through rigor mortis, but they never think about it with fish. And it's, it's, it's just as important with fish. You, know, you want to know another one that not a lot everybody knows? Mm-hmm. Picking up a fish from the tail. I see so many people pick up, I mean, specifically big fish, like a king mackerel or salmon or something like that. I can't, so many people pick up fish from the tail. And like, have you ever cut a fish and you've seen this weird gap in the, in the flake? Yeah. Like, you, the, yeah. It looks like, it almost looks like a gap, a gaff hole, you know? That's because somebody picked that fish up by the tail. After it was dead. After it was dead. So what happens if you, cause I'm assuming you're saying that the body elongates and stretches and it kind of breaks. Yes. So, I mean, you know how a fish flake goes. A fish flake goes the same direction as the scales. Yeah. The fish flakes from the head to the tail. So that's the way it's meant to sit, to sit. If you flip the fish from tail where the tail is up, the gravity pulls those flakes away from each other. Right. This really only happens on a very large fish, but, and it's, and salmonids are very prone to it. What happens if you lift a live fish like that? Because I see a lot of people who don't know proper fish handling holding live fish by the tail. Are they prone to the same sort of... Well, they're super not happy, but they're still alive, so... But are they tearing, do you think? Probably. I, I don't know for sure, but probably. 
Coming up, Hank and I continue our conversation. Again, thank you to Great Fishing Adventures of Australia for making this episode possible. If you're planning a visit to Australia, I cannot emphasize enough that you must check out australia.com forward slash fishing. When I followed my husband down here, I couldn't believe the opportunity I was witnessing. Huge fish, countless species of fish, experienced guides. Australia is home to some of the most diverse quality fisheries on our planet. Great Fishing Adventures of Australia brings together some of Australia's best fishing operators to collectively raise the profile of Australia as a world-class fishing destination. Learn more by visiting australia.com forward slash fishing. Again, that's australia.com forward slash fishing. So wait a second. So let me get back to this career of yours then, because it's getting more interesting by the second. So <laughs> what what happens after the Ethiopian restaurant? I worked in a couple other restaurants for a little bit, and then um, and then I decided I would, uh, I was going to work full time for that uh, black newspaper, the Madison Times, that I told you about, and that's kind of really where I I got the bug um, because we were doing stories that mattered to people, and it was it was again one of these things where you know nobody was talking for them, and so our newspaper was doing stories that nobody else was, was writing, and it, and it was something exciting about that. And then, uh, I ended up leaving there and going back to Long Island of all places, uh, for, for a girl, um, as you do. And so I did that for until like 97, like the very beginning of 1997. And then this was, I was working for a weekly newspaper in, on Long Island. And it was fun. It was great. It was actually too good. It was too comfortable. And I always had in the back of my head that, uh, could I cut it at a daily newspaper? So I, with no daily newspaper experience, I applied and I finally actually got a job as an editorial page editor at a daily newspaper in suburban Washington, D.C. called the Potomac News. And I would, I did that for a little while. And then, uh, I got the opportunity to be the Capitol Bureau Chief for the Fredericksburg Freelance Star, which is in Fredericksburg, Virginia. And that, I'm just going to go ahead and say that was the single greatest period of my journalistic career. It was five years. And I, it was family known newspaper at the time. And the owner, a guy named Josiah P. Rowe gave me, he tasked me with this. We were talking about goal oriented adrenaline. So in it, in its history, the freelance star was a hundred some odd year old newspaper. In its history, it had been an indispensable part of political Virginia. And you had to read the, the freelance star to understand what was really going on. It had fallen from that. And so me being in my late twenties, this is where I'm thinking about Nyland. Um, you know, I'm like, hell yeah, I can do that. And so like, like most guys that age, you fake it till you make it. And, and so he said, make it happen. And so there, no amount of overtime was too much. I had an expense account and it just, I had to produce results. So I worked like a dog for five years, but I did it. And I was, I was trusted by everybody because I didn't screw over anybody. And like, you know, I, even guys, I ended their career, but I did it in a way that it's, it's almost like the, God, what's, there's an expression of like, I said, like a gentleman can tell a man to go to hell and he'll enjoy the trip. <laughs> um, it's like an old Irish expression. I'm getting it wrong, but it's close to that. I get the gist. And it's, but it was like somebody, like a, a case in point where this guy embezzled a whole bunch of money and like he, he was done. He was over. Well, I didn't, I knew him so well. I'm like, well, why did you do that? You know, it's like, it's, he's like, oh, I didn't do it. I'm like, ah, come on, man. We, we know you did it. 
And, and so I was able to write a story of someone who made a mistake, a, ra- a real human who, who, who messed up as opposed to typical political coverage, which is that person's in a monster. Mm-hmm. And, and that was, that was an amazing time where you learn restraint. You learn that you, there's a lot of things that you don't know. Um, you learn really well how to tell if somebody's lying to you. You, you actually also learn how to, to make your bones if you have to. Like there were some times where, you know, you were not going to get respect unless, unless you put the hammer down every now and again. And it was a good, good experience. And it was, I, I felt sad to leave, but I left for a bigger newspaper in again for a woman this time because we're older uh <laughs> and so she had gotten this is holly you know holly to excel photographs for the for uh for my books and everything. current partner my current yeah we've been together for a dog's age um and and so holly had got a job at the at the pioneer press and so we're kind of coming full circle here for the with with how i started hunting and I wasn't sure if I was going to follow her. And then, I, and then I decided, yeah, I'm going to follow her. And then I got a job on the investigative team at the Pioneer Press. Oh. So the goal there was, could I not only, I knew I could hack it at a daily newspaper, but Fredericksburg paper wasn't a huge paper and the Pioneer Press is a big Metro Daily. And so I wanted to see if I could cut it in the Metro Daily. And it turns out I could. That, that, okay. So it does come full circle, but where do you, do you ever get back into restaurants or was that it? I was, I was it for restaurants. That was it. Um, oh, restaurants came back after I got laid off in 2008. Okay. So that was my next question was why did you end up? Cause it sounds like you're super passionate about being a reporter. Why did you leave that? So, um, again, Holly got a great job at the Orange County Register in, in Sacramento. And so I followed her out there and I had, I had a choice of two jobs in Sacramento. I could have been a one member of the Beehive, which is the large political team at the Sacramento Bee. Or I could reprise my role in Fredericksburg as the Capitol Bureau chief of the Stockton record. And that was no contest. Like I 100% Stockton record because I could do the exact same thing I did in Fredericksburg and Stockton. And I'm, I'm happy to say I did. Um, but you know, as you, as you well know, newspapers have been t- on a long slide, but there's some, there's some cliffs in the, in there. And 2008 was one of them. And so they, 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 Laid me off and closed my bureau. Oh, so, okay, I gotcha. But at that point, you, I had you'd already written your first book. No. Oh, no. I thought I had, that was in 2007. When did you write your first book? Ah, so I got laid off in 08, and then I started Hunter Angler Gardener Cook, the website, in 2007. Uh oh, wait. So you started it before you got laid off? Oh yeah. So that's the the answer to your question is is the again. You and probably everybody listening to this are probably good at something that you no longer love. And if you're not, you will be. And I was very good at politics and covering political reporting. But after the year 2000, it, year after year after year, it kept getting worse and worse and worse until until really we're in the position that the American public is in right now, which is hideously divided. There was no longer any concept of compromise or debate. And it was mostly people shouting and saying bad things to each other, which it it wasn't when I started. It really wasn't. And and so, yeah, sure. I was, I could still do it, but it's like, I just, it became gross and, and just unhealthy. And so I turned more and more to the outdoors as a way to stay sane. And I started the website in 07, uh, largely because 
I wanted to do more food writing and I couldn't sell as many magazine articles as I had ideas. And so the, the website was an outlet and I started to put a little more and more into it. And in 2009, so I got laid off in 08, but then I worked for a uh, kind of an insider baseball political newsletter called the Capital Morning Report in, uh, from in 2008 and 2009 and 2000, in the beginning of 2010, the very beginning. So I got my first James Beard nomination in 2009, and then I got another one in 2010. And so right around that time, I uh, there was a, a wonderful woman who's not with us anymore named Pam Hunter. Um, but she she saw, she had faith in me, and she said, you know, at some point you're going to cut the cord and you have to decide if you're going to do this or not. And so I did. And so I've been doing this full time since April 2010. Yeah, that's amazing. Congratulations on those on the James Beard, by the way. That's huge. Did you you did I actually won it in right? 2013? Yeah, that's yeah, what I in 2013. How did you? How are people finding you? I mean, obviously the internet's a big place, but how was your name starting to gain recognition at a rapid rate? Like, how did that all unfold and transform? I mean, it's. I, I honestly, you'd have to ask other people that question. Um, but the, uh, the one surprising thing that I would know, that I would, that I can remember for sure is, so in 2010, I think it was, I won the International Association of Culinary Professionals award, for, award for best website. And I'm like, yay. So I walk off the stage and this guy grabs me by the lapels and goes, you're Hank Shaw. I love your stuff. And I look at this guy and like, you're Brad Farbury. You're on top chef, you know? And it's like, holy crap, this super famous chef not only likes the website, but really loves what I do. And then I, that was the first time I realized that, that professional, like people who I used to be like professional cooks and chefs read the site. And it's incredibly exciting. It's, it's, incredibly humbling and gratifying is like a low level old line cook and, and sous chef could provide inspiration for somebody as with a great culinary mind as a guy like Brad Farmery. Um, and it's just, you know, that's, that's some serious, you know, inspiration and fire to like work harder, work harder, work harder, you know? And, and it's funny, I've been doing the website now for 13 years and I am so remotely far from being bored. I, I, everybody asks me, how do you keep doing it? Like, you know how many ingredients there are in the world to play with? Do you know how many cuisines or techniques or just, and it's an endless series there. If, if, if I could, if I had the ability, I could probably post five times a week because I have that much going on. But I have that much going on in my head all the time. And I only do it twice a week to, you know, for, for, uh, most people don't only want to hear from you <laughs> once or twice a week anyway. So. <laughs> don't you ever worry you're going to run? I mean, it's a silly question, but don't you ever worry you're going to run out of ideas? Has that never. happened to you before? Never. I've never, ne that's never happened and I've never had writer's block. Oh, well, geez, that's, that is lucky. Cause how many books have you written now? Four. Four. And I'm working on a fifth. Is that what your full time job is? The writing? the website and presentations pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the website takes a lot of time. Everybody thinks I don't work for a living. Like even my friends are no. like, oh, I don't work. And like, yeah, yeah. Well, 
<laughs> yeah, no, it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is a lot of work, but it's funny because I always feel like I see you as somebody that I view, somebody who I view works hard, but doesn't promote hard. Like, do you feel, do you feel like you're a self promoter? Uh, I feel that I try, but it's, it's the thing that is, I, I've been approached by any number of entities over the years. Oh, you need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. And again, to go back to the chef world, the happiest chefs I know do not have empires. I've talked to any number of chefs with empires whose names you probably know. Uh, and they're not happy. They like the paycheck, but they're not happy. They want to do things, you know, and, and I can't tell you how many newspaper editors I know who are not happy because they're not reporting and you get into the job to, to be a reporter. You get into the job because you're going to be a cook. You get into the job because you're going to be a writer. And I'd, I'd rather be me than be big. You know, I just, I, that's why I've never had any, there never been any other contributors to the website ever in 13 years. It's just me. It's me and yeah, it's a lot of work managing contributors. <laughs> it changes everything. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, people will say, Oh, you gotta, you gotta do this or do that. I'm like, you know, I'm okay. You know, I could pay my mortgage. You know, I don't, I live in a little house and then, you know, outside of Sacramento and I'm okay with that. You know, I drive an old Subaru and I'm okay with that. And, you know. Are you where you want to be or can you see yourself doing television or taking it to the next level? Do you want to take it to the next level? Well, I mean, define next level. I mean, the the one thing that would be fun, I think, until I do it, because then I could change my mind. If there were a TV show there would do something that I wanted to do. Like I'm too old and I've been doing this too long to jump up and down like Bear Grylls or Gordon Ramsay on his his new TV show. Those shows are ridiculous. So if a TV show came around, like I've got ideas for one, you know, but if somebody, you know, said, Hey, yeah, we want to do the show that you want to do and we're going to make it happen. Yeah, I'd do that. But that's about it. Yeah, that's not it. That your answer doesn't surprise me. I kind of figured that much. Uh, let's talk a little bit about I- ingredients, if that's okay with you. I've got some questions. Is there a plant in particular that you tend to really gravitate towards, or is that kind of an open-ended question? Like a wild plant? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm only talking wild right now. Like, I'll give you an example. So my thing is chickweed. It's all seasonal. Like, we're kind of coming out of the green season right now, but... There's so many amazing wild greens that, you know, that, 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 yes, that can, I can all spring long and, and sometimes in the fall I'll come back. I don't know. I, I'm a real proponent of the Italian method of eating, which is to say when something's there, gorge yourself on it and then move on. So like asparagus is a great example. I will eat asparagus as much as I possibly can in April and May. And then I don't eat it again for the rest of the year. And in fact, it makes me deeply angry to see asparagus on an American menu in like November. Like really, really like I didn't sign up to eat Chilean asparagus. Sorry. Okay. So does that, does the same go for meat as well? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, so we're now kind of transitioning out of meat season and into fish season. So we'll eat game six nights a week, usually because we go out once in a week, Uh you know, from about, 
about Labor Day to about now. And then the rest of the year, we fish five or six days a week. And it doesn't mean we don't break it up a little bit, but there's just there's rhythms to the year that we've come to to enjoy. Yeah. Do you ever find that you're in a lull or a season where you just don't have any meat, where it's primarily uh, seeds or just you know a different protein source? I mean, there's never a, a dearth of anything. I mean, this is a. It's California, and B. Holly and I are pretty good at what we do. So, <laughs> so uh, again, to go, there's a phrase that that Ranella uses that the meat crisis. Um, that has never happened. Like never, we've never had a meat crisis. Um, because it's, we're, you know, there's only two of us too. That's the other thing. What about for plants? Cause I'm really into the whole weed thing right now. Is that not that kind of weed thing, even though I am from British Columbia, but like, you know, <laughs> plants, Do, is there a weed that physically pains you to see people poison or rip out of their garden? There's a number of them, but purslane would be number one, and then lamb's quarters would be the other. You know, because so the lamb's quarters. Let's let's just take lamb's quarters first, because there's a there's a good story behind why it pains me. So it's the the Chenopodia family is this huge, huge, huge family of wild spinaches, and the the natives who developed their civilization around Ohio and and it's the Mississippian civilization in the eastern seaboard. It's inland though. It's not on the coast. So that's one of the, the centers of the origin of agriculture as we know it. So there's about five of them in the world and that's one of them. And one of their, their linchpin cultivated agricultural plants was goosefoot, which is just another name for lamb's quarters. So here's a plant that not only what, I mean, there's another one in, in England called good King Henry. Um, it's, it's another chenopod. There's every, there, there's a, a wild spinach with the same basic leaves that lives all over the world. And virtually every culture that has it eats it. And so when you see like, you know, I'll just be cruel for them, like fat, privileged, rich Americans, like, like trashing what is infinitely better than spinach because it's growing in a place that they don't like. Eh, you know, it's just like, all right, whatever, guys. You know, I just, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so like, my my, it's gonna say whatever in my tombstone, <laughs> but like, I'm not gonna get exercised about it, but you know, whatever. You know, you just it's your loss. Personally, is another one. There's like everybody who has personally eats personally. I might have to look that one up. Is it on the West Coast? It's global, which is why it's got it's an interesting story because they don't officially know where it comes from. Now the the they think it's a European or old world, really an old world Eurasian plant. But there's a lot of evidence of native groups in the Western Hemisphere using it prior to Columbus. So take that with what you will. So gardeners know that it's the indestructible thing that can take over your garden. But even I let it live in my garden within reason because it forms a living mulch. <gasps> it's a ground cover. And, and it's an edible ground cover that keeps the, the surface of your soil moist. And especially in a place where it lays, it'll be 104 degrees Fahrenheit in two days here. So, and a, there'll be a spot where there's no purslane over it that's going to dry out crazy. And I'm going to have to water it twice as much as the one that does have the, the purslane on it. And then you can eat the purslane if you want. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of a dual threat weed that, that's actually super useful. What's your take on consuming any sort of weed or plant that's had a car drive by it or that's near a road where it could be polluted? It depends on the road. So there's, there's a, there's new research out within the last couple of years that show that the, the 
accumulation of biotoxins is far lower than they thought it was. So, so plants can really only think about one thing at a time. Like they only, they're, they're pretty much driven individuals. So, uh, a plant when it starts is only really thinking about putting roots down so it can stay in the ground. Then I'm like, all right, we, now I need to photosynthesize. So I'm going to make some leaves and then it's going to make leaves for a while. And then it'll be like, all right, I got enough leaves. So now I'm going to make some flowers. It's like, all right, now I'm only going to really make flowers. And then flowers get pollinated, hopefully. And then they're like, all right, cool. I've got enough pollinated flowers. I'm going to make a bunch of fruit. And then I'm going to let the fruit ripen. And then the fruit falls off. And then if I'm a perennial, I'm going to go back to making roots again. So that's how a, a plant spends its year. So I tell you this because if you're foraging for something near a road, you're going to want whatever the plant is thinking about at the time. Because it's the newest material and it has had the least amount of time to bioaccumulate toxins. So the only other piece I'll add to that is that uh, uh, well, not all roads are created equal. Highway 50? Yeah, no. Um, but like some country road, who cares? Yeah, that's kind of the way I see it. So what about, I know when I'm, when I'm taking from different plants, it, you're trying to often grab, like if you're trying to eat the shoots or leaves, you're trying to get it before they flowered. Why is that? Is that just because the energy will start going to, is it the mm-hmm. nutrients, do the nutrients go to the flower once it starts? So well, it depends on the plant, but in general, your, like, let's take what we've been talking about, lamb's quarters. So I grow, I actually grow a variety of lamb's quarters called Wazantles. Um, it's an Aztec version of it. And you can, you can still buy it at shops and, you know, they eat it all over the place in, in, uh, Mexico City and places like that. So when you grow it, it will, it, it has great big leaves. I mean, they can have leaves as big as your palm, which is big for a lamb's quarters. And, and then those are great and you can enjoy those. But at some point the plant's going to be like, all right, all right, all right, enough of this already. And it's going to send up, you know, fl- they're, they're flowers. They don't really look like flowers, but they're flowers. And, and so then at that point, the leaves are still edible, but they're just not as good. And another great example are dandelions and everybody knows dandelions. Right. So dandelions have two things going against their leaves. One is heat and the other is the presence of flowers. So heat's more important, by the way. So the hotter it is, the worse the leaves are going to be. You only eat dandelion leaves in cold weather because otherwise they're insanely bitter. I was just going to say, I I was just going to ask you that because I found that this summer when I was getting them here, just in my backyard (laughs) here, in in the the heat, they were so bitter. I mean, way, way worse than when I'm in Canada. Is that what it is? That's what it is. So you, uh, I, I've stopped eating, I'm in Sacramento, like I said, and I stopped eating them in mid, uh, St. Patrick's Day. Oh, that's so interesting. What about the root? When's that, when's the prime time for that? Now the root, so depending on what you're doing with the root, but like most people make coffee out of it. So I actually encourage dandelion to live in my backyard because it's, it's a pretty, it's a, as far as weeds go, it's pretty tame. Um, some people would dispute that, but at least in Sacramento, they're pretty tame. So I know where they are in my yard. And so when I want to make a dandelion coffee or, or roast the roots for whatever reason, I'm going to wait until like this, the first rain of fall. And the reason why you wait for the first rain is because have you ever tried to dig a big root out of hard, dry ground? Well, that was my next question for you is how the hell do you get them out of the ground? Because I cannot tell you how many times I've cursed going. It's a thing. I know people dig up the root, but I can't get to it. And I've got this big, bleeding white bit of root in my hand and I feel bad. You'll often are going to break it off at some point, but um, so burdock, 
yeah, right. Burdock, um, dandelion, chicory root, all of these things. You just got to wait for the fall rains. Okay. That makes way more sense. Okay. So actually you're the perfect person to ask this to. I have been saving up all of my dandelions to make my first batch of dandelion wine. And I ended up finding this field. How are you doing this? Well, I've got all the stuff, but I haven't done it yet. So I've got my big fermenter and I've bought mm-hmm. all the I'm going to follow the recipe off Beverly Gray's book. Unless you have one on your website. It's, then made, it's made only with the, with the flower petals though. Yeah, I know. So I've got all my, I've picked them all and I've got it down to a science where I pull, you know, I peel them and they all come out and I'm left with the little green bit and I discard that. Cause are you, are you freezing them? Yeah, I've had to freeze them. Okay. Yeah. Because like this, so when I make dandelion wine, it's an, it's a major pain in the ass because the, the flower, see the only reason you're doing dandelion wine is for, um, color and aroma. It has really no flavor to it. So you're making a very basic baseline wine. If it's me, I'm going to use honey. I'm going to make it a mead um, because money, honey just adds more flavor to the table than white sugar, you know? Yeah. So, and, and the color of a light honey will, will marry well with the color of the dandelion uh, petals. So yeah, like typically I do it. I will get up super early in the morning and pick all those flowers because I want the flowers picked by 11 a.m. They are the most moody flowers on this planet. If it even starts to rain, they close. If it's, yep. if I wait until 1110 or like 10 minutes after around here, it's more like if I wait till two, they close. And once they decide that they're done for the day, they're done for the day. Yep. It's just, it's amazing. You can look in your backyard one hour and say, Oh, I have no dandelions in my backyard. And then the next hour, your entire field is, is yellow. They're super moody. And this is the, the, the single greatest argument for child labor. Little children, give them some small amount of money to pick the the dandelion heads. It's the easiest way because you need an absolute metric ass load of, of dandelion petals to make a decent batch of wine. Yeah, so my <laughs> like recipe, gallons of them. Well, my recipe is four cups of it, of, of petals. You're only making one gallon? Yeah, yeah. So just four oh, cups. So it's yeah. totally, it's totally possible. Um, but here's my question that I found this field of, is it cat's ear or cat's paw? Cat's ear. Oh yeah. And it's mm-hmm. similar, it's similar, but I couldn't find any information online if I could turn it into, I know I can turn it into jelly and I know that I can turn it into a loaf, but I couldn't find any information about if I could turn it into wine. What do you think? I mean, it's perfectly edible. There's nothing toxic about it. But the the question is, does it have the aroma that you want? Have you ever had good dandelion wine? No, never had it. Ah, so there's a lot of different ways to do it. But I am still haunted by a batch I made when I was living in Fredericksburg. I let it age for two years. What? And it was the color of a Sancerre. It was crisp, but it smelled like dandelions. It was ethereal. And so, I, you know, I have a lot of things going on all the time. So I, I, I'm able to let things lie down for long times. And this was like, we actually don't have a lot of dandelions where I live. So I've, I've never been able to make it here because there's just not enough dandelions. Now, I don't think that the cat's ear is going to have the same aroma. And, and that's really the major thing that you're getting out of dandelion wine is that amazing aroma. Oh, okay. I did not know that. That could be I- wrong. You could try it. Well, but the problem too is it just doesn't have the same amount of petals, right? Right. When you really get into it. And I mean, it's a lot of work. I end up getting blisters on my thumbs and I get these 
patches of brown all stuck in the, you know, the, my fingers, you know, you know, it's like tar, right? That really gets stuck on your fingers. Uh, but do you have a recipe for this online for people listening on your website? It's my first book. It's in my first book, Hunt, Gather, Cook. I don't actually have a dandelion wine recipe on the, on the website because I haven't been able to make it in California. Okay. I gotcha. 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 All right. Well, I'm going to have to drive people to your website. So is there anything else that I should be asking you that I simply don't know to ask you about your, I, I, I feel like I, t- I could talk to you for days upon days about <laughs> ingredients and, and recipes, but about your timeline, is there something I should be asking you that I don't know to ask? I don't think you cover the major points. I mean, got the book I'm working on and, and then that's about it. You know, we should go, we should fish together. Yeah. So, well, so if you're in, Cal- in California, that's not so bad. You're actually not that far. When we're back in Canada, it's really easy to get over to you. As it happens, I have a fairly big readership in Australia. Uh, yeah. And I've never been there. So I, I'd like to come. You would do really well here. And I, I do notice that foraging is on the uptick. Have you noticed that foraging is becoming more popular? It, I, I'm, <laughs> it's funny. I feel old. Like I've seen it come up, come, come up and down two or three times now in my lifetime. And yeah, I would say it's on an uptick. I think it's had a couple in the last 30 years. Um, and then when I was a kid, I was, we're kind of on the tail end of the Yule Gibbons era. But yeah, I mean, it, it comes and goes because I think fundamentally it shows up in times of uncertainty. And when people are uncertain about everything, the ability to feed yourself is important. I mean, like Holly and I like to to note that how many adult animals are there on Earth that don't inherently know how to feed themselves? Takeaway stores, restaurants, and farmers markets, and you know, ninety percent of the country is effed. And so, foraging becomes this kind of easy intrinsic thing to like, I can be a more better human by knowing some wild plants to eat. So what happens then is that they, it's like canning, right? So do you, do you can things? Oh yeah. Big time. So when you started canning, did you can like a billion gallons of something that you've really didn't need a billion gallons of? Yeah. Salsa. <laughs> See? <laughs> For me, it was peaches. I haven't eaten the blasted stuff. But yes, yes, I know exactly what you're saying. So the same thing happens with foraging. Uh, so if you decide that you want to put gatherers part of your resume, you're going to go into it whole hog. You're going to do all of these things. And you're going to first realize that, A, it's hard. B, it takes a lot of time. You're trading time for money. And, th- and three... At some point, life will get better for you again, whether you know it or not. You know, so it's, it's some, maybe it's a life change of a job or a move or you have a kid or something like that. And you kind of drift out of it. And that happens kind of in big waves. And the good thing about all of that is almost always that individual will retain the core of that gathering experience and pass it on. So now you don't, you only can a gallon of salsa where you may have gallon, did five gallons of salsa. So you, you know the core of what it is that you need and makes you happy. And that actually occurs. And I've seen it occur three times now with, with gathering. And so then when it comes up again, you've got this better baseline of knowledge somewhere in the populace. Now they may not talk to each other, but with the, with the, the series of tubes that is the internet, things are getting a little bit more easy to learn. Yeah. 
Big time. In, in a good way. Do you think that we can over harvest? I mean, you always hear of people being afraid of angling pressure and hunting pressure, but is there such a thing as foraging pressure? Of course. It's the, it's the tragedy of the commons um, because most gathering is done on public land, right? at least in the West. So you have seen – this is where commercial harvesting of wild plants and mushrooms comes into it. Let me start with mushrooms. So mushrooms, as we know them, are just the apples. The mycelia is the tree. And it's very difficult to to kill the tree in that case. So mushroom harvesting is not a bad thing. And it's very difficult to over-harvest mushrooms. Could it happen? Maybe, but nobody's ever shown me data to show that a heavy harvest of the fruiting body of the mycelia has hurt the mycelia. Habitat loss hurts it. So, but that's not, that's not harvesting. Uh, now with other plants, especially the plants that you kill to, to gather, i.e. anything with a bulb and, you know, ramps, I'm talking to you, those can be over harvested. So you'll see on my, I run a Facebook group called Hunt, Gather, Cook. And Every March to early May, every 30 seconds, somebody's posting up a giant woodlot full of ramps. Well, all those woodlots are on people's ground. They're not on public ground because ramps only live really on <laughs> private land because it's that part of the country where there's not just not a ton of public land. I mean, don't get me wrong. Somebody's going to, you know, call you and be like, ah, I got them all on private public land. Yes, it exists. There's nothing like the West and ramps don't live in the West. So. Much of what's going on is on private land, and that could be good or that could be bad. So if it's on private land, it's mine. And almost everybody is smart enough to not eat your own seed corn. So they're not going to over-harvest because they want to, they want it to be on their ground next year. And that's great. That can work for generations, centuries. What happens though is you can see landowner X, who doesn't really give a rat's ass about ramps. But some commercial picker says, hey, I see you have ramps in your ground. I'll pay you X amount of dollars to harvest your ramps. And so the landowner who doesn't care gets, a, you know, some money. The harvester picks that place dry. And then then that's the problem. And you see that with uh, ostrich fern fiddleheads as well, in the, especially in Maine. Um, so can it occur? You betcha. Um, but I believe it is a little bit overblown in the public consciousness. I think there's a lot of feeling, especially among people who want to be, there's a lot of labels we could use like woke or socially conscious or whatever you want to call it. But just, let's just say that people who want to be good people, you know, that's really what the core of that is. They just want to be good people. So these are the same people who say you can't eat swordfish from New England. Like, I'm sorry, that's the most sustainable harvest of swordfish there is. Yes, they are over harvesting swordfish in the, in Indonesia. So buy American swordfish. So, but they're, they're saying, oh, I heard somewhere that they're over harvesting ramps. Therefore, you should never harvest ramps. So it, there's a, there's this hard, it's, it's sometimes hard to, to deal with because you have people who are, who, they mean super well. 
They just want to be good people, but they're not equipped with the right information. Yeah, they're ill-informed. And, and, it's like it, when, when I get yeah. shamed for picking dandelions because the bees need them. And it's like, yeah, maybe oh, maybe where you are, there aren't a lot of dandelions. But where I am, is, especially when I'm in like Victoria, Australia, there's so much, there's so many flowers there. It, it'll be okay if I take a few flowers home to feed my family. Right? Yeah, so I think people need to remember that it yeah, is I mean, region-specific. Not only is it region specific, it can be time specific. It can be anything because this is like if we, we could have an entire conversation just about sustainable seafood and we should at some point because, oh boy, what well, do you want to talk about a rabbit hole? Right. <laughs> um, I do have a question for you about something that you said that just kind of sparked my curiosity. You said that it's, it's something that's got a, a bulb that obviously if you uproot those, that you can exhaust a reason, you know, a resource. I made your three cornered leek kimchi mm-hmm. and it was delicious. Thank you. And mildly terrifying. Charles was afraid. My husband was afraid I was going to blow up the kitchen, but I, I found that they were just growing. They're super invasive and everything I read about them said, do not plant them in your garden. Even when you rip up the bulbs, they still come back. How does that, I've always wondered how that works when you're, if you're totally uprooting a plant, how does that make them thrive even more? Ah, there's two reasons. One, you're not actually t- ripping up the whole plant. Many, many bulb plants, not all, but many bulb plants form bulblets, like little micro babies, oh. loosely attached to the original bulb. And in the act of pulling up the main bulb, oftentimes there'll be little bulblets that stay in the soil. So the act of pulling that bulb has actually created a window for those little bulblets to then become full-on onions. Onions are notorious for this. So, I mean, you could pull as many ramp bulbs as you want if you are slow enough to, when you pull them up and you see the bulblets attached to them, replant the bulblets. Right. So, I mean, I know individuals who do that, but I don't know very many commercial guys who do that because it takes too long. It's, it slows you way down. But if I had a ramp woods, or, or, you know, any kind of thing where it was a bunch of bulbs. Like I actually saw a bunch of, um, mariposa lilies where we were morel hunting yesterday. Not enough where I want to take them, but it's nice to see them back. And that's a, that is a delicious bulb. But again, that's one of those things of abundance. If you find a giant field of them, go ahead and take some. But if you're seeing 15 plants, leave them alone. Right. Wait, okay. Um, so wait a second. So as far as sustainability goes and just regrowth, obviously with mushrooms, you want to use a basket. You want the spores to spread. Sounds like they're hard to really um, exhaust. It, with bulbs, that makes sense. Replant. But what about fiddleheads? What would you do to try to be a conscious harvester with fiddleheads? So I can't remember the exact number, but there's an exact number of, of fiddleheads per fern that you can take any given year. And the fern will be fine. It's like asparagus. It's exactly like asparagus. So if you are greedy on an asparagus patch and you take all of the, the spears, you just killed your asparagus. Like, where's the fun in that? So you have to have like this happy medium. And of course, with asparagus, it's your plant, so you can choose. And if it's fiddleheads on your ground, you can monitor that. But this is where it happens. It's like, so let's say it's a big old patch of ostrich ferns and it's public land. So I walk around and I take, you know, three off of each one. Well, there's going to be like 15 of them, but I've just harvested sustainably. The next person who comes around, maybe they take three and then another person takes three. And then you get that tragedy of the commons that we're talking about where, you know, then you've, you've, you've screwed that fiddlehead patch and you've potentially killed it. And so that's, that's a problem with that because 
they're putting the plant is putting so much energy into these. And remember, like plants only do one thing at a time. So at that point, plants are like, I need fiddleheads or shoots. And so it's it's putting all its energy into that. And if you take all the fiddleheads, it doesn't have enough energy in the roots to keep doing it. That makes sense. That makes sense. Do you guys have bracken ferns there? Oh, yeah. So how could somebody who's new to foraging tell the difference? Because I can tell well, you easy. when I was in Norway. They don't look anything like each other. So a fiddlehead. Yeah, can you? Because a lot of. A lot of people think that all fiddleheads are the same, and I just want to make sure that people know that they can be, they can, I mean, I know they can make your stomach upset. Can they make you more sick than that? Sure. Um, there are, in North America, there are only two true fiddleheads that are edible, the lady fern and the ostrich fern. And you got to know, you got to know what the, what the difference is. And, and, you know, chances are, if you live in the West, the only one you have is a lady fern. There's this weird pocket of ostrich fern in British Columbia, which nobody really knows why it's there. Like it's, it's gotta be something from before the ice age or something some weird stuff like that. But like, it's an East coast thing, except for British Columbia, which is bizarre. Um, and then in for bracken fern, bracken's easy. Bracken doesn't look like a fiddlehead. It's an, it's an eagle claw. It's a clenched eagle claw. And then when it unfolds, it's an open eagle claw and then it's a fern. So you'll often find all three stages right next to each other. And you only take the clenched eagle claw and you know, I have a, I have an article on it on my website. You have to kind of detoxify bracken fern. You can't just sit there and eat them. You've, there's, there's a carcinogenic compound in them that you can mitigate through this process. It's a soaking process. If you, and if you do that, and the, again, you follow the asparagus rule and you gorge on, on bracken fern for like the month that it's, it's being, you know, it's, it's in action and then don't preserve it and just, just enjoy it as a, pr- a fresh thing. You're fine. The people who get carcin- uh, carcinogenic problems from it are the people, usually Koreans and, uh, and Japanese who eat a lot of bracken all year long. Right. That make, that makes sense. Did they historically have any issues with that? I thought, I think I remember reading something once that historically they did die of like stomach cancer and they may have linked it back to that. Yeah. That was the, all the studies that I read was esophageal and, and stomach cancer, uh, well, much higher incidence of it than there should be. And then they traced it back to bracken. Yeah. Because cool. I mean, bibimbap, that famous dish in Korea has bracken on it all the time. Oh, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's why, why do they use bracken? Why not use the ostrich? They probably don't have the ostrich fern. Where they're there. They have, well, aren't all fiddleheads carcinogenic? Some are just worse than others. Uh, I would, I don't know the answer to that question. I, 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 I actually, I'll be honest. I don't love fiddleheads. Oh, no. Yeah. Even they're in probably butter. the most. They're probably the most popular foraged item that I just meh. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. What is your favorite item? And then I'll wrap this up. Oh God, it'd be hard to say. Like probably mushrooms. Like I just drove three hours each way to go pick mushrooms. Yeah, yeah. Do you dehydrate your mushrooms? I do. In fact, it's you running right now. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, listen, I've taken up a ton of your time. I'm going to wrap it up. Um, is there? Any- that you would like to add or to ask me no i don't know we've covered a lot i mean i'm sure you can you're going to tell people where you can find me uh on your show notes but can you tell people what your website is so the core of what i do is hunter angler gardener cook it is uh the easiest way to find it is huntgathercook.com that will take you to it and i am also huntgathercook on instagram and i'm pretty active on instagram as well and I run a, a private Facebook group, uh, called the Hunt Gather Cook. And, uh, if you say that you heard me on this podcast, I will let you in.
Uh, well, I cannot thank you enough for coming onto the show. Thank you very much, and I hope that we see you down here soon. Yeah, it'd be great to go. I've never been to Australia. I've been in New Zealand, but not Australia, so I'm looking forward to it. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. 